Welcome to Creepy Crime Podcast, a podcast where two friends tell each other creepy stories. I'm Allie. And I'm Creighton. Creighton, how are you today? I'm doing well, Allie. How are you? I'm good. I've got one cat next to me and a dog laying on the floor. We're, we're doing good. It's hot here. Yep. Both of my puppies are asleep on each side of me. So, I'm getting all the cuddles while I record. That sounds good. It's nice. Yep. And plus, on top of that, as a gay individual, it's Pride Month. It doesn't feel like it because everything had to be canceled due to COVID. But, it is Pride Month and it's a wonderful, wonderful time. So exciting. Uh, I know. Uh, on my other podcast, Oh Dear Lore, I did the Stonewall Riots Ooh. today. That was the episode that got released. Next year, I want to go to Pride Parade with you. Oh my god, I would love for you to be here for a Pride Parade. This year, we're actually doing one, but it'll be in October, really close to your wedding. So, ah. <laughs> so you won't make that one. But next year, I would love to have you. Me and Adam actually walked in the Pride Parade last year. I think, yes, you told me that. That was sounded fun. Yes, we were... Um, we were with the group of representatives from the uh, the Bohemian uh, Hotel chain. Mm-hmm. And we had a wonderful time. They were such delightful people. Uh, we had great times with the crowd. We did come across a protest spot um, to where there was an old man holding up signs that said, God hates fags, but he was there by himself. And it made me feel more sad for him than anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it was just him standing out there by himself yelling at the parade that was going by, blaring music to where you could barely hear him. Two stories this week, and I think they're both kind of long, so I think we should go ahead and get started. Okay, so I'm going to go first. All right. And my story is on the West Memphis 3, Ooh. which I didn't know much about. I know nothing about it. And I also thought it was Memphis, Tennessee, but it is not. It is Memphis, Arkansas. So. It happens. I didn't even realize there was a Memphis, Arkansas. I didn't know there was a. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So, I think most of, if not all of my information is from Wikipedia. It had a very informative article. So, on May 5th. 1993, three eight-year-old boys went missing while playing together as a group. Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers were seen around 6.30 by neighbors the night they went missing. The boys were best friends, they attended school together, and they were Boy Scouts together. Oh, I was a Boy Scout. My, yeah. I know, you're an Eagle Scout. Yeah, once an Eagle Scout, always an Eagle Scout, but yeah, you're right. That is what I am told. <laughs> Michael was known as the leader of the group and often wore his scout uniform when not at meetings because he just liked being a scout. Awful dweebish. <laughs> yeah, but they're eight. <laughs> Christopher. Oh, okay. I thought they were a little bit older than eight. Like, I thought he was like an actual Boy Scout, Boy Scout. No, they're like Cub Scouts. They're little babies. Oh, this is going to make this a lot sadder. Uh-huh. 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 I mean, it's sad either way, but the younger they get, the sadder it is. So Christopher and Steve were both raised by their mothers 
and step or adopted fathers. Um, so Christopher's adopted father was the first one to call and report the boys missing that night around 7 p.m. Uh-huh. The police did very minimal searching that night, but the neighbors also conducted a small search that night, even stopping by the place the boys' bodies were eventually found. And they didn't see the bodies there? No. So I didn't... So did they do like a... Oh, sorry. What were so you I didn't read any more into that, but yeah, they didn't really do any real searching until the next day. They just kind of looked around. Okay, so they didn't do like where you fan out everybody three or four feet apart and do like a line search. No, which they should have done because like it was 7 p.m. in May, so... Right. You know... Should have had enough sunlight. There should have been enough light. And it was 93, so it wasn't like the 80s or anything. But So the next search, the next morning, the police began a very thorough search, making a human chain to search to the neighborhood the boys were last seen in. So that's what you're talking about, where they're a couple feet apart. Right. Uh, while others searched the rest of... I think they call that a grid search. Yeah. While others searched the rest of West... West Memphis, Arkansas. It took many hours, but eventually she was seen floating in the creek that led to a drainage ditch in the neighborhood. So they started searching at like 8 a.m. The shoe was found at like 1 p.m. Yeah. Searchers found the bodies of all three boys. Um, they were discovered naked and hogtied in the ditch. They were hogtied with their own shoelaces, which is interesting. The boys' clothes were found in the creek, wrapped around sticks that were shoved into the ground. So, oh. like, they were trying to hide the clothes. Yeah. Um, so one of the boys was, um, mutilated. And two of the boys' underwear were never recovered. Oh, no. Yeah, Christopher Byers died from multiple injuries, while the other two boys died of multiple injuries and drowning. So police originally thought the boys had been raped, but it was later decided it was unlikely due to the evidence found. Police think that the boys were assaulted and killed in the location they were found, while others believe that the assault did not occur at the creek. So there's a lot of differing information throughout this entire case. Yeah. So the police will think one thing, and then experts will say something else, and then they may come back to what the police said. It's a very... It wasn't handled well. So only Byers had drugs in his system at the time of the autopsy, but it was most likely his ADD medication. But it is also noted that his stepdad said he probably didn't take it that morning. So we're not, but nothing else was ever said about the drugs that were found in his system. So I assume that it's... Like, did it mention what kind of drug? So he took Ritalin. But it was something else that was found, but it was, I don't exactly know. They didn't really say much, and so I'm pretty sure it's just assumed it was his ADD medication. Okay, because I was about to say, you can definitely tell what's ADD medicine and what's not. And ADD medicine's not used to subdue. Yeah, like they didn't, it wasn't like, they don't think he was drugged. Okay, so they they just found some sort of chemicals in his uh Optopsy drug reports. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't really know why that was put into this because it just made me more confused, but I figured that kind of 
leads the tone to the rest of the case. Everything's a little confusing. Well, it it was probably put in there because normally when they give a report, if it's a non-conclusive um, drug test or if it's a drug that wouldn't have caused something knocked out in the autopsy report, a lot of times, like the standard report that's released, not the actual autopsy, they'll normally just mention that there was a chemical compound found in the system. And so that's probably speculation done by other people other than the uh, person who did the autopsy. The coroner. That's what you call him. Yeah. So we're going to move on to the suspects. All right. There are two different sets of teenagers were found as suspects for the murders of the young boys. The first set was Jesse Miss, Miss Kelly Jr. He was 17 years old. Yeah. Jason Baldwin, who was 16 years old. And Damian Eccles, who was 18 years old. But we're going to talk about them later. They're a whole different part of the story. They were arrested and charged... So we'll talk about them later on because there's a whole mess with that. All right. So the second set of teenagers was Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. Chris Morgan drove an ice cream truck around the neighborhood the boys lived in. So it was presumed they were at least familiar with Chris. Yeah. Chris and Brian both had a history of drug and alcohol abuse and left the area for California four days after the bodies were found. Chris and Brian were arrested in Oceanside, California and given polygraph tests that showed deception when asked if they had anything to do with the boys' murders. Chris did tell investigators he had a history of blackouts and memory lapses and claimed he may have killed them, but then recanted his statement. From DNA tests done, they were ruled out as suspects. So basically, this guy would get so drunk that he would black out. And so he was like, yeah, I might have killed them, but I don't know. That's... Like, I mean, honestly, if I didn't know, the one phrase that went out of my mouth was, well, it's possible. You know, sometimes I like to have one too many. Um, like, that's that's just standard. If I honestly don't remember doing it until the end, I'm going to say I didn't do it. Yep. So that that's a weird statement to make. I don't necessarily think they should have been fully ruled out. Um... That's just my own opinion. But the DNA was conclusive, right? It was the early 90s, though. So how accurate and how thorough were these DNA tests? Like, I want to know where they got the DNA from, how much they had, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Well, that makes sense. Um, there were more suspects known. There was another um, suspect known as... Mr. Bojangles. I don't like the sounds of that already. And this lead was not handled well at all. It was not followed up with, well, there's a lot going wrong with this one. So, yeah, a Bojangles near the neighborhood the boys went missing and then were found in had a disoriented man show up and was in the ladies' room the night, be- like the night of what would have been the murder, the night the boys went missing. Yeah. He was bleeding and kept brushing up against the bathroom walls. The manager called the police and his statement was taken from the drive through window. What? A statement was taken from the drive? The officer never entered the restaurant. He never entered the bathroom. The officer drove up through the drive through and took his statement through the drive through window. No. No, that is not acceptable. Because the person had left and so he didn't see a reason to go in. 
So the next day, when the bodies were found, the manager called the police station again, recounting the man from the night before, thinking he may be someone of interest. Yeah. Blood scrapings were then taken from the restroom, but were lost before they could be tested. The only real thing that they know about the Mr. Bojangles was that he was a black male. Which is interesting when put together with a black male's hair was being found in the sheet on one of the boys. Oh, um, one of the boys had around them. Hmm. That just feels like really shoddy police work. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I like to give the police the benefit of doubt. But, well, in cases like this where... Because as a police officer, there can be certain things that happen that just the DNA wasn't good enough like it was corrupted already you couldn't use it but they lost this dna and on top of that the police who showed up didn't take fresh dna while he was there because of the fact he didn't go in yeah they're lucky that the manager of this bojangles didn't clean didn't make didn't have the bathroom cleaned that night and they are really lucky but i guess it really wouldn't have made a difference because they lost the samples anyways so so this is where we go back to the original three um teenagers all right police in this investigation thought that this murder had occult ties because we are in the early 90s so they looked at damien eccles as he had been known to dabble in a cult and they felt he could be capable of murdering children there's also another um informant that becomes kind of important to the decisions that the police make yeah but she later on recants all of her statements and they just don't care so there is a lot more to the story but because i already had like two and a half pages i didn't go into her story so if you are very interested look into this there's a lot and i know there's more coming out too so Eccles was given a polygraph test where he denied any involvement, but deception was seen. A couple days later, a formal interview was held where Eccles mentioned wounds to the genitals of one of the victims, which investigators determined was incriminating knowledge. Because they hadn't released it? Uh, that's not certain. Oh. So I'm wondering, though, how public that information was. It was a very public search for the boys. Right. And it was in a small town. Right. And these, like, the murders made headlines. It wasn't just police that were searching that day. Everyone was searching. Right. I would also wonder how the interrogation went. Because, you know, even before they put them on a lie detector test, they asked them questions. So I'd be interesting. I would be interested in knowing whether the officer doing it because, also, what year did this happen? 93. 93. So, I mean, the U.S. was still kind of coming out of that satanic panic mode. So, I would be interested to know if the officer himself, who had interrogated him or asked him questions, had mentioned it. There's also... Well, let me keep going, and you'll understand why I'm even more... Con I don't really trust it. So, please continue to interview Eccles very frequently but did not say that he was a person of interest but instead said he was a source of information so Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. 
was later interrogated, but under questionable circumstances, as he had a very low IQ, he had an IQ of 72, and was a minor, but was interrogated alone without parental permission. Hmm. Well, that's, that's not good. He was in police custody being questioned for 12 hours, yet only two short segments of this interrogation was recorded, totaling 46 minutes. Oh, that's a long time for a child, like, to be being interrogated without parents. And he's, like, 17, but with such a low IQ that he should have a guardian anyways, even if he was a, an adult. Yeah. Um, so Jesse confessed to being part of the murders, but then recanted stating intimidation, coercion, fatigue, and veiled threats from the police. Ugh. Jesse specifically said he was scared of the police during this confession. Portions of Jesse's confessions were leaked to the media before the trial even began. Oh, which meant that everybody in town thought he did it too. Mm-hmm. So shortly after Jesse's confessions... Eccles and his close friend Jason Baldwin were also arrested as being part of the murders. Jesse was tried alone for the murders while Eccles and Baldwin were tried together. In Jesse's trial, experts testified that from the short clips of his interrogation that he was coerced by the police, but he was still found guilty of one account of first-degree murder and two accounts of second-degree murder and sentenced to life plus 40 years in prison. 40 years? Remember, he's a minor. Yeah. Life plus 40 years. He appealed, but the Arkansas Supreme Court upheld the sentence. Eccles and Baldwin also pled not guilty, but were found guilty of three murders, and Eccles was sentenced to death, while Baldwin was was sentenced to life in prison. So Eccles was 18, he was technically an adult, and Baldwin was a minor, and he was just sentenced to life. One of the main pieces of evidence was that Eccles knew of the genital mutilation, but it is very much questioned if that was due to information leaks. Um, because there already, I mean, there obviously were leaks with Jesse's confessions being leaked. Yeah. So as documentaries were being made about these murders, new things started coming about. So John Byers, who was Christopher's adoptive father, gave a knife to a cameraman of the documentary crews. So they get back home to like New York and the knife, um, the guy's looking at it and it appears to have blood on it. So he sent it back to West Memphis Police Department, but it was not received by the police department for about a month after the blood was discovered on it. So was the DNA on the knife corrupted? So, wait a second, I lost my place. Oh, sorry. When Byers was questioned about the knife, he said it had never, he had, had never been used. When asked why there was blood on the knife, he stated he had actually used it once to cut deer meat. When informed the blood type found on the knife matched him and Christopher, he said he had no idea how the blood got there. The investigator suggested that he had left the knife out, and Byers agreed and stated he may have cut his thumb with it. That, I mean, I guess that could be a reasonable assumption if there's like a few drops of blood on it. But A, you would normally clean a knife afterwards. And B, no. Yeah. Especially since the police had suggested it. Byers was given a polygraph test during the filming of the documentary Paradise Lost 2 Revelations. 
and passed when he asked when asked about possible involvement in the murders. But he it was noted he was on different psychoactive drugs that could have affected the results. It was also later noted that there was a possible bite mark on Steve Branch's forehead. But these bite marks were not mentioned in the original autopsy or trial. So all three of the teenagers who had been convicted of the murders had dental imprints taken, but they did not match the bite marks. John Byers had all of his teeth removed after the first trial, but before an imprint was made. He had claimed both the seizure medication he was taking caused periodontal disease, and he had planned to planned the removal because of the di- because of other kinds of dental problems which he had troubled him for years. Could they have that story backed up by his dentist who would have known whether he had those problems? It was not stated whether they actually looked into it or not. Hmm. So there have also been concerns from Steve's mother about his stepfather Terry Hobbs. In 2011, Jesse Eccles and Baldwin were released as part of a plea deal, the Alfred plea. So, from what I've read about the Alfred plea, um, and mind you, I'm not a lawyer, I've never studied law. The Alfred plea allows the defendants to state their innocence, but in turn is a plea stating that the prosecutors have enough evidence for conviction. Hmm. So, the judge at this trial sentenced them to time served, but if arrested for breaking probation, they would see 21 years in prison. Damn. So, some of the family members had come out at different times stating how they did not believe the three teenagers to be guilty. Also, different profilers have come out saying the murders appeared to be more likely have been done by one person and appeared to be punishment-based, specifically targeting Christopher Byers. So, for right now, this case is unsolved. That's a hard one. Yeah, it's really sad. It's really weird. I don't know. It's... A lot of things weren't handled correctly. Yeah, no, it, it sounds like out of all the good police work that's been done over the years, that was not amongst it. It was not at all. Nope. So, is that all you got? But there are there are some wonderful police and detectives trying to solve it for the three boys. Yeah. Currently. And I, I hope that they can. Um... Oh, that's still just such a heavy story. Um, I know. And it's not going to get better, guys. Like, if you thought that one was heavy and you need a break, this is your break time. Um, so, do you have anything else for us, Allie? No, this one might be like a... This one might be a, a two-phase. You might need to, like, take a break and come back, like... Yeah, now... Tomorrow. <laughs> I will say that if you... Wait until the end of mine. Mine does have a good message at the end. Um... But now, Allie, I don't think you've ever, heard, like, read up on my murder that I'm doing today. The murder of Matthew Shepard. I don't think so. But, um, this story actually has, like, a personal effect on me. Because it's about a gay college student who was actually beaten to death for being gay. In 1998. And so, as I was going out into the world as a younger gay man, this story is always kind of stuck in the back of my head. Um, and it, it, for the longest time, was one of my greatest fears, especially in smaller towns. Matthew Wayne Shepard was born on December the 1st, 1976, 
Now, his dad was an oil rig inspector who worked in Saudi Arabia, and Matthew had attended high school in Casper, Wyoming, and then he went to the American school in Switzerland before he went, uh, came back to the U.S. and went to the University of Wyoming at Laramie, where he had studied foreign relations, languages, and political sci- uh, science. Now, on campus, Shepard was completely open about his sexuality. And he was even involved with the LGBT Student Association. So, one night, uh, Matthew decided to go out to a local bar called The Fireside. Matthew sat at the bar drinking from a bottle of imported beer, and after somewhat more than an hour, he was approached by two men his own age, Aaron Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. They were both high school dropouts who worked roofing jobs in the local area. They had purchased a pitcher of beer, and eventually, they started talking to Shepard. So, shortly after midnight, Shepard left the bar with McKinney and Henderson. Um, The police think that the two men lured Shepard, and they also think that they had pretended to be gay themselves, but they were going to rob him. So, in his confession, McKinney repeatedly described Shepard as a queer, the gay, and that fag. Oh, no. Right. So, McKinney and Henderson drove Shepard to a remote area in the Sherman Hills development east of Laramie by McKinney's own confession, and it was corroborated by Henderson. McKinney told Shepard that the two men were not gay and that he was going to be robbed. McKinney began punching and pistol-whipping Shepard before continuing the assault at a buck rail fence on Warren Livestock Company land. Investigators and an autopsy later determined that Shepard was struck 19 to 21 times in the head with the butt of a 357 caliber Magnum Smith & Weston pistol. And one of the blows had irreparably damaged Shepard's brainstem. So... Uh, At McKinney's direction, Henderson bound Shepard's wrist with white clothesline from McKinney's truck and left him tied and unconscious to the railing of the fence. They took his wallet, his identification, and his shoes. They then hopped in their truck and drove back to Laramie, uh, and it was around 12.30 a.m. So, only a few minutes later, the police got a call about... Uh, vandalism and confronted McKinney and Henderson in a neighborhood that McKinney and Henderson thought was where Shepard lived because they were going to go back and rob his house too. So after the argument became a street fight, the police responded to that call and spotted fleeing individuals, one of whom was Henderson, and discovered Shepard's ID and credit card and the bloodied modeled pistol in the truck. Both McKinney and Henderson were equal, uh, were treated separately at Evanston Memorial Hospital because they both had head injuries from the street fight that they had gotten in. So, during the coming day, following their medical care, McKinney and Henderson uh, met up with their girlfriends, Kristen Price and Chastity Paisley, who would later be convicted for their roles that they played when they disposed of evidence and helped the men concoct alibis for uh, the Shepard case. So, while all this is happening, Shepard remained tied to the fence 
mostly unconscious, for approximately 18 hours. Oh, my God. Until a passing mountain biker, Aaron Criffolds, found his bike. He uh, fell from his bike. He noticed that what he thought might be a scarecrow slumped along the fence line, but it was, in fact, Shepard. Coffolds ran to a nearby residence to call authorities. The sheriff's deputy, Reggie Flutie, and emergency medical technicians responded. Flutie later reported that since Shepard was 5 feet 2 inches and had a kind of a boyish appearance, they thought it was a child at first, but his face was caked in blood except where the tears had left tracks along his cheeks. Oh my god. So, um... Attending physicians at Evanston ascertained that Shepard's head injuries were grave and had him transported to the Portier Valley Hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado, which was about 65 miles away, where he was admitted to the intensive care unit. The police investigation continued while McKinney and Henderson, Paisley, and Price were all ultimately arrested for the crime. Now, Shepard stayed in the state of a coma for about four days at the Polvey family while his parents, Judy and Dennis, tried to make it back to Fort Collins from Daharan, Saudi Arabia, where Dennis was employed. Uh, Henderson uh, and Shepard lasted four days before succumbing to his injuries and dying at the hospital. So, when it came time for the cases, Henderson's case moved forward first. So, in April of 1999, he reached a pre-trial plea agreement which took the death penalty off the table in exchange for two consecutive life sentences. And McKinney's case proceeded to trial in the fall, a year after the attack. After his effort to mount a gay panic defense was ruled out by Barton Vaught, McKinney's counsel, Prosecutor Carlo Richon, and, she- and the Shepherds agreed to a similar plea bargain for consecutive life sentences. Now, have you ever heard of the gay panic defense? No. All right, so there was a time in this country to where if you had wound up beating the crap out of somebody uh, or killing them even, there was a legal defense that you could say a gay man had come on to you and it had so disgusted you and scared you that you beat the shit out of him and therefore you can't be held uh, accountable because he was just too gay to stay alive. How is that a thing? Oh, I don't know, but it worked in a shit ton of cases. There are hundreds of cases where men were nearly beat to death and their attackers had used the gay panic defense and gotten out because the courts agreed that the gay man shouldn't have come on to them. Oh my God. Yeah. So uh, McKinney's agreement was that he did not have to speak to the, that he would not speak to the media about the case and a provision that uh, a provision that he would repeatedly violate in later years. So in 1999, Wyoming legislators considered a state-level hate crime bill because you had to remember that none of this is covered under a hate crime bill at this point in time. Neither of them were charged for hate crime. Ugh. So. Uh, the, the state legislators considered one that extended hate crimes to anti-gay and lesbian criminal motivations, but they failed to vote it through. It died on a 30-30 to 30 tie on two consecutive days and has not once since that day been debated again. Oh my 
God. Right. So, McKinney and Henderson remain in the custody of Wyoming Department of Corrections after several years of being shuttled among the several out-of-state facilities. Uh, Henderson tried an appeal in 2004, but it was rejected by the Albany County District uh, Judge Jeffrey Donnell. Good. So, uh, this actually gained, like, international fame after it happened. And it motivated part of the hate crime legislative debate and Judy Shepard, which was Matthew's mother, established herself as a prominent LGBT rights activist who played a key role in finally securing the passage of a federal LGBT inclusive hate crime bill in 2009. Oh my goodness. Which means that it still took 11 years to get this bill passed after the murder. But she did it. Oh yeah. No, like, you can find videos of Judy Shepard all over the internet talking at different functions and things like this. Um, so, she and her husband Dennis had established a foundation in Matthew's name in 1998. And it continues uh, to this day of pro-LGBT educational work with the offices in Casper, Wyoming and Denver, Colorado. Uh, Shepard's death, as I said, attracted widespread attention, uh, not only in Laramie, which had a population of fewer than 30,000, but across the, uh, the whole world. According to federal laws at the time that covered hate crimes based on color, race, and religion, and national origin, none included sexuality or sexual orientation. And so... In 1998, Wyoming, as I said, was one of the 10 states that had no hate crime laws to uh, protect anyone at all. Goodness. Right. And so, uh, of course, most of the gay rights movement uses uh, used Shepard's name to call out the injustice towards LGBT people and fight for the right to be included in hate crime bills across the nation, finally in 2009 passing the federal state statue of it. And in 2007, the Local Law Enforcement Hate Crimes Prevention Act, later dubbed the Matthew Shepard Act, was introduced to address the shortcomings in the law. Um, although the bill was passed by the U.S. House of Representatives, it was delayed because of widespread Republican opposition, including U.S. President George W. Bush, who threatened to veto it. Oh and in uh, And 2009... The, a modified version of that bill is what was approved by the House, the Senate, and the U.S. President Barack Obama. Uh, and it is officially known as the Matthew Shepard James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act of 2009. Uh, Byrd was an African American who was brutally killed by three white supremacists in 1998. To this day, Shepard is memorialized by his parents' foundation, the Matthew Shepard Foundation. And they have a mission to replace hate with understanding, compassion, and acceptance. And they have done it through various educational initiatives. So Shepard is remembered in the play The Laramie Project, and that is a chronicle of his death composed of the interviews with Laramie residents and was created by the Tectonic Theater Project shortly after his death. You can actually find that online if you'd like to go watch it. It's just titled The Laramie Project. And... It is actually amazing. I haven't watched it in a few years, but I cried a lot during it. Not gonna lie. So, 
Uh, Shepard is also the subject of two television movies, The Matthew Shepard Story and The Laramie Project, which uh, were both put out in 2002. And The Laramie Project TV show is just a version of the play. Like I said, you can find it out there. So, because of concerns that his gravesite would be vandalized, Shepard was not buried until 2018 oh when his ashes were interred at the Washington National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. Wow. Because it was such a volatile time that his parents were scared to bury him because they thought that his grave would be vandalized, which is just horrible. It is. So... This this right here was a horrible story. It's a horrible thing that happened. And like I said, growing up and being gay and not fully out of the closet and living alone, going off to college like where we met in South Carolina, I didn't know what was out there. Well, I mean, But I knew that things like this were out there. And it terrified the shit out of me. And that's why a lot of times when I think about it, I get kind of emotional talking about this story. Well, I mean, whenever I tell people that my best friend is a gay man who lives in Alabama, they're all like, he's living in Alabama? Yeah. And they all get worried for you, and they don't even know who you are. Right. I mean, I live back in the hometown where I was born and raised. A lot of people know me. Most people accept me. Well, now I tell them that, too. I'm like, his family is a well-respected family in that town. Right. And they, they respect him. Right, and I will say that, I mean, hell, it has been over 20 years since this crime was committed. And attitudes have changed all over the place. Um, It's still not exactly where it needs to be. It's kind of like, technically, uh, when people, I I actually get comments all the time when people ask me why there's like a Pride Month. Because they said, you won your rights, like what? What's the big deal? And I'm like, well, you say that, but every day there's still people trying to chip away at those rights. It's kind of like here in my home state of Alabama, and I brought this up on the other podcast when I did the Stonewall riots, Alabama was completely against the decision in the DOMA case, which is Defense Against Marriage Act. When the Supreme Court struck that down, the act said that states did not have the right to discriminate who could get married as long as, like, they could not discriminate against gay individuals who wanted to get married. Uh, Because that is discrimination, just plain and simple. That you would allow straight people to do one thing, but just because you're gay, doesn't. So, Alabama has actually passed a bill to where they pretty much gave up their right to decide who can get married. So, they have paperwork you can fill out, and... It, is, it works just like a marriage certificate. The state of Alabama no longer have to issue marriage certificates at all. That way, if gays, uh, that way they don't have to marry gays. Just nobody gets married. I still find that as the stupidest thing. One of the stupidest things your governor has done. Probably the stupidest thing your governor has done. Let's be honest. Nah, there's more. Trust me. There's nothing like Meemaw Ivy that just really makes your blood boil. Um... Uh, there, there's a few things like her. But the craziest thing is no one knows that. So, like, I'll tell people that, and they're like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, no one can get married in Alabama. Yeah, like I said, there is still technically certificates. It's the same as being married. You get the same, uh, like, tax deduction. 
It just, it's not a, uh, an official marriage certificate like you would get from other states. So, I mean, technically, you can still get married. Just, it doesn't carry the same weight. And it's also not, uh, not fully known if other states have to recognize the certificates that you're given. Exactly, like... Yeah, like, I mean, so, like, if me and Adam were to, uh, like, get married and all, we would more than likely have to go to Georgia and get a marriage certificate there, just in case we ever move. That way they can't say, well, we can't take this, it's invalid. Yeah. So... Be like, what is this? It's not a marriage license. Right. <sighs> well, as we think about all this, voting is happening soon. In some states it's already happened, but in Georgia it is happening... November 3rd. Actually, before this will come out. Oh, uh, the primary voting? Primaries. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, primaries are on Tuesday. And they're important, guys. But also in November. Yeah, we've already voted. Vote! Oh, also, vote. make sure that you're registered to vote. There is a lot of states out there that have done voter roll purges for people who are either not in state but still claim in-state residency because they own houses and all there, um, but have to work other places and things such as that. So if you've missed some voting in the past, uh, your state may have decided that you were not an actual voter and purged you off their rolls. So if you're not sure, you can check out the voter registration. We'll leave links in the description bar on that. We'll leave some stuff about what's going on in our world and what we can do to make it different, make a difference. Um, but vote, please vote. We don't need to have another president who does not believe in the rights for all. Right. We don't need an authoritative president. We don't need one that does not believe in the ideals of America. And most importantly, we don't need a hypocrite. Yeah, we don't need a man who says one thing on Tuesday and another thing on Wednesday all because he's trying to appeal to different people. That's not a president. That's an ass kisser. Alright guys, we hope that you've enjoyed learning some of the stuff from this episode. We hope that you... It's a very sad episode, but... I mean, it is, but it does have its bright sides. And hopefully, hopefully in the future, we'll be able to give an update on those three young boys and their murder. Because I hope he is caught. I feel bad for the three that were arrested, too. Oh, yeah. Well, it's kind of like... um the Central Park Five. Because they were so wronged. Who, the Central Park Five? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We need to talk about that one sometime, too. Oh, yeah. We ooh, we can even talk about how Donald Trump swayed the vote on whether or not they go to jail. <sighs> and still continues to attack them occasionally. Even though... Okay, you need to give me a, a, a mood lifter, because now I'm just getting more and more depressed. Ooh, all right. Well, I have a fun fact about county coroners, if you want to know it. Sounds good. All right. Do you know why most counties in the United States elect their county coroners? So that they can't be swayed? Nope. Oh. The reason that most counties in the United States elect the county coroner, it's because the county coroner is the only person in those counties who has the power to arrest the sheriff if he commits a crime. Ooh, that's cool. Yeah. I just learned that the other day. It's not the same in all counties, but in most counties that vote 
for their coroners, he is the only person with legitimate power to arrest the sheriff of that county. So, look into who you're voting for coroner as well. Yeah, turns out those fuckers are important. All elections are important. And yeah, your vote matters. But there, there's some that you go, I don't know why we're electing these. Oh, while we're talking about important people to elect, also, make sure you look on your ballot this year. There will be people, and they will say, in most states, that say elector for District 1, elector for District 2. Those people are the representatives to your electoral college votes. So make sure that they're honest, upstanding people who are going to represent the views that you voted for. Uh, you can look on any of your state's directory pages, and it will give you the names and numbers of your governors, of the representative of your district, of for both houses, state and uh, the Senate House and the Legislative House, normally known as just the congressman. Uh, you can also find your national ones, such as both of your senators, senators and however many uh, House members you have. And those are kind of important to know about right now, that you can contact those people and that you can make, make your voice known with all the uncertainty that is currently occurring in our country. Right. And if you feel strongly about these protests, do you know what you should do? You should look up your congressman's numbers. We would give you their numbers, but the fact is there's 50 states and there's a hell of a lot of congressmen. It would take us all episode just to give you all their names and numbers. So I will try to find a link, though, that will show you them. Yes. And call them. Let them know what you think about the problems in America, whether it be COVID-19, whether it be the death of George Floyd and police brutality. And Brianna Taylor. Don't forget about Brianna Taylor. Oh, yes. She's been overlooked a lot with the George Floyd happening as well. She has been. And now now there are definitely groups moving for her, which I am glad to see happen. I'm glad to see that she didn't just get faded into the background because of the fact that George Floyd was the main igniting point of the current So protest. public. Yeah. So... We're going to be our best to make a better future for each other. And we hope that you'll join us, guys. All right. Goodbye. Bye.